Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. You know, as Americans, we treasure our constitutional rights. We know that the government can't do anything to interfere with our religion or how we choose to express it. We know that if a soldier wants to quarter themselves in our goddamn attic, we can tell him to buzz off. And we know that we have the right to freedom of speech, to protest for whatever the heck it is we believe, to sound off in the comments around this great land. We know about these rights. And we also believe that the government can't take our stuff or rifle through it without a warrant. That's the Fourth Amendment, which protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures. It's in the Constitution, and we believe that it applies to all of us. Well, I've got some unfortunate news for you. If you're one of the nearly two-thirds of Americans who lives within 100 miles of a border, that Fourth Amendment is kind of, well, not something that totally applies to you. Because courts have ruled that if you are a reasonable distance from the U.S. border, federal law says that Customs and Border Patrol can board buses and boats to demand people show their immigration documents. They can search your property without a warrant. Basically, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to them. And that reasonable distance ends up being about a hundred miles, a hundred miles from the border. You know what's included within a hundred miles of the border? Many of the largest cities in America, like New York and Los Angeles and even Chicago. That's right. It's in the Midwest, but it's a hundred miles from the border. And the Southern Dangle state of Florida exists entirely within that 100-mile border band. That means that every single person in Florida does not have Fourth Amendment rights when it comes to Customs and Border Patrol. And uh, it's not like there are just a few Customs and Border Patrol agents. The CPB is one of the largest law enforcement agencies on the planet. There are more Border Patrol agents than FBI agents. Their agency has grown massively in recent decades, and the border that they now, quote, protect has been increasingly militarized over that time. Our border is now traced by walls, surveilled by cameras and drones, and patrolled by tens of thousands of agents. So here's the question. Why is the border, out of everything in America, so important that it requires us to relinquish our rights and embrace a permanent state of militarized vigilance? What exactly is going on here? I mean, the truth about our border, like all national borders, is that it's fictional. It doesn't exist. It wasn't laid down by whatever deity created North America. We just slapped some lines down in the middle of the desert and said, that side's America and that side's Mexico, ignoring the fact that a big chunk of the land once was Mexico. And before that, it was something else. And way into the future, it'll be something else again. It cuts across geographical features like aquifers, watersheds, and animal habitats and natural migration patterns, doing incredible damage in the process. And despite our militarized border, despite all of the time and money and infrastructure and lives that we are pouring into this artificial barrier, people are still crossing. When you think about it, the border is one of the most bizarre features of the American landscape. We spend massive resources and empower a huge law enforcement agency to violate the Constitution in order to enforce a boundary that is inherently imaginary. I mean, I don't care what you think, you gotta admit that is weird. Well, 
to break down exactly how weird it is and to give us a first-hand account of his decades of reporting on the border and the conflicts and contradictions that he has seen there. Our guest today is journalist Todd Miller. His most recent book is called Build Bridges, Not Walls. He is a fantastic guest. I really hope you enjoy him. Please welcome Todd Miller. Todd, thank you so much for being here. It is great to be here. Thank you, Adam. Last saw you on an episode of Adam Ruins Everything called Adam Ruins a Murder, where you were on to talk about Border Patrol, about America's borders. Uh, let's, let's get into it. I mean, the Border Patrol is one of the most massive and powerful yet poorly understood uh, institutions in American law enforcement. What, what do most people not realize about it? Geez, uh, where do we start with the Border Patrol? Um, well, one uh, one thing is just their ac- their exponential expansion. If you look at the in the last twenty to twenty five years, for example, in the in the mid nineteen nineties, there were four thousand Border Patrol agents, and now there's twenty one thousand Border Patrol agents. Um, uh, in 1995, there wasn't a Customs and Border Protection, which is the parent agency of the Border Patrol. Now there's a CBP. CBP is, c- contains the Border Patrol, but it also has like a special forces unit. It also has um, what they call field operations. It has a number of different components to it, and it's the largest federal law enforcement agency at 60,000. And so, so we're looking at, you know, just this very... Uh, dramatic expansion of, of Border Patrol agents, if you just want to take that st- statistic alone over the last, you know, in a very short amount of time, because um, the Border Patrol themselves formed in 1924. It was 1920. So from 1924 to 1994, there's basically, it grew from maybe 500 agents to 4,000. And then it went from 4,000 to 21,000. Now, now wow. the reason... To, to look at this uh, this expansion of the Border Patrol um, is they don't only work on the actual border. Right. So, so you, yeah, so you have the international boundary line. If you look at the international boundary line with Mexico, it's about 2,000 miles long. But you actually, when you think of the border, you actually have to imagine something much bigger than that. They work in what is known as a 100-mile zone, a 100-mile jurisdiction. So it's probably better to imagine a band that goes uh, mm-hmm. along the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border, but also up the coast, and then also along the 5,000-mile Canadian border, and then also down the, uh, down the eastern seaboard, right? And so, so that— So you go, you go along the entire border of the country in 100 miles, so like 100 miles east of Santa Monica— well, which is the you know western city here where I live, a um, hundred miles east of San Francisco, a hundred miles east of Portland, Oregon, a hundred miles south of Milwaukee, or a hundred miles north of El Paso, like a hundred miles e- uh, west of New York City, like uh, in a band around. You, once you start picturing that, that seems like kind of most of the country, or at least a huge amount of the maybe a third was that's a huge area. It's a, it's a gigantic area. Um, it's, uh, if you look at the U.S. population, it's two thirds of the U.S. population. Uh, approximately wow. 200 million people live in that border jurisdiction. I'm like picturing that's like all of Florida, right? It's like, it is. It, 
Yeah. It's Florida. If you're in Florida, you're an entire you're, you're in, in you, you live on the border zone and the border patrol has exactly. jurisdiction over where you live. And the state of Maine. Many people don't know that, but the state of Maine <laughs> is completely in the border zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not not something that you often think about people in Maine sitting on their porches chomping on uh, a corncob pipe and sitting on the border. <laughs> it's not like what we picture. And and they, and the border patrol has special powers in this zone. That is correct. Yeah. So that's one of the main things to think about when you are looking at this zone. Um, uh, the zone that the, at, at first, the ACLU ran a report, the American Civil Liberties Union ran, ran a report on, on this border zone, and they first called it a constitution-free zone. They since, it's important to, to mention that they since revised that to say, mm-hmm. you know, people absolutely do have constitutional rights in these border zones, but it's a zone where your constitutional rights are mangled. It might be, might be better said to be called a constitutional mangled zone or something like that. Meaning that, uh, in the, in these jurisdictions, Homeland Security Forces or Border Patrol, they have the right, um, to search or seize you. And in, in, in other words, your Fourth Amendment protection not to be searched nor seized is mangled or even it's suspended. Um, so, so I'm, as I sit right now here in Los Angeles, I am inside this zone and you're saying that vis-a-vis the, the Border Patrol, I actually don't have Fourth Amendment rights. The Border Patrol could come into my house, search and seize my belongings and even myself, and which I would believe is unconstitutional, but I, I actually do not am not protected by the Fourth Amendment from the Border Patrol where in this very room. Right. It seems quite improbable, right? But Yeah, what the fuck, Todd? What's what, <laughs> what, what Okay, let's think of it this way. Well, first it's reasonable they have reasonable suspicion, right? So uh-huh. it's not, that's not probable cause, it's reasonable suspicion. So if an agent saw you like walking down the street and saw something that gave the agent through the agent's criteria reasonable suspicion and they were doing a roving patrol, you know, in the neighborhoods in Los Angeles, and they and uh yeah, they could come in to your house and uh I think actually they wouldn't in this case there are rules around going into dwellings. Like uh but even those rules are are mangled i should say because uh because they're not they have to have a warrant to go into a to a dwelling okay um but within 25 miles of the board so there's a 100 mile zone but then there's a sub zone of 25 miles and in that 25 mile zone they they border patrol can go onto private property they just can't go into a dwelling but they do they are they do they're always people like on the People are talking about what they call home invasions constantly, where Border Patrol goes into their house, they're looking for somebody. But to go back to your example of the of the LA, one 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 thing that I should mention, so so people wouldn't think that this is so. I mean, it's very unlikely, but is it like there? So so remember in the summer when in, when there were protests every night, Black Lives Matter protests right. in Portland. Yeah, and um, all of a sudden, it was reported that Bortac and Bortac is a special forces unit of the Border Patrol were on the streets of Portland, and they were snatching up activists and putting them into unmarked vehicles. Yeah, and then driving them off. That is an example of uh, of a hundred mile zone all of a sudden expanding 
into another region where you wouldn't necessarily think the border patrol would operate and then not even not patrolling the border per se, but using their special constitutionally mangled powers or extra constitutional powers to, to then, you know, just arrest people and drive them off in unmarked vehicles. And so where do these extra constitutional powers come from? I mean, there must be some like the, you know, the police can't do this. The FBI can't do this. But there's some legal framework under which the Border Patrol in this zone has special powers. Where do they come from? So they come from, um, I believe it it was a, um, there's a couple rulings happened in the 1940s and 1950s. One, one, I believe it was this. Uh, coming out of one of the first immigration laws that border patrols, it stated that border patrol could patrol a reason, what they called a reasonable distance from the border. And then that reasonable distance was declared to be in a 1950s ruling a um, hundred miles. Mm-hmm. And so that came during a time when this is why the expansion to 21,000, that CBP at 60,000 agents is such a big deal. At that time, we're talking about 200, 300 agents. We're right. not talking about this gigantic, the largest federal law enforcement agency in the United States. Yeah, um, this is literally like guys at toll booths at that point, like just sort of. I assume much. Chi- oh, I don't know what they were doing, but they were like, yeah, they're 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 fucking guarding the border. They're not like roaming around in vans. Yeah, not necessarily. They're not. Uh, I remember, like, I I go and uh, interview people on the Tonawatam Nation, which is just south of where I live in Tucson. Uh, which is it's the uh, in terms of yeah, it's like the second largest indigenous uh, reservation. Native American reservation in the United States. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's the people have been bisected by the border, but they talk about, um, you know, even before 1990 or before 1995, they hardly ever saw the border patrol, except for this one guy who would show up every once in a while. And who was kind of nice. <laughs> that's, how, that's how they describe it. And then he would, you know, he might hang out in a house for a little bit and then he'd go away. Um, so it, it's it's changed pretty drastically. Though I don't I don't want to. There there are things about the border patrol in the past that are very, um, you know, they. That doesn't mean that there haven't been like massive abuses right. done by the border patrol. I mean, the border patrol were rounding up Japanese and Japanese Americans and putting them in wow. internment camps. They were, you know, rounding up Mexican and Mexican Americans in the 1930s and deporting them. And they did these massive deportation um, raids and operations like in the 1950s. So we don't. I don't want to totally, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know you know, wash over that, but, but it's, but this, but the expansion of it within the hundred mile zones has turned what was a rather small agency into this gigantic force um, with all these budgets behind it. So they had two to 300 agents. Then there was a ruling that said they have much larger jurisdiction. And then that, what did that cause the, the agency to expand? Hey, now that we have larger jurisdiction, let's get more agents and go further inland. Is that what happened or? Eventually. I, at first it, it didn't, they didn't, they were just, they didn't expand hardly at all. They were just growing slowly, but surely they, I probably, they probably uh, were very close to the border, you know, sticking close to the border at that point. They do do checkpoints. They were doing checkpoints. One of the main things you can do in the hundred mile zones that police can't do is put up these checkpoints, really permanent checkpoints yeah. where traffic has to stop and 
then you get interrogated by an agent and they determine whether you can go on or not. Just yeah, like the Adam, are, ruins, Adam ruins everything episode. Right? Yeah. This has become a real flashpoint in the Southwest, right? That, that the border patrol will set up a checkpoint that's between two American cities, like not, not, you know, on a route coming from the border or anything like that. Just like, Hey, somewhere in Arizona on a regular old highway, we got a checkpoint stop and we're going to stop everybody and ask for what ID or what are you doing? Or can I pop the trunk and, and stuff like that. And like to a lot of Americans, we've been brought up to say, uh, at least white Americans, we've been brought up to say, well, this is unconstitutional. Hold on a second. You can't fucking do this. And then of course, for non-white Americans, it's like a incredibly, uh, potent opportunity for discrimination. Yeah, exactly. It's and it's true. Uh, in Arizona, the the checkpoints tend to be from the south north. Okay. Um, so anytime you're any paved road going north from the border, you're going through a second border. You're going through the checkpoints. But wow. but there's the one I'm thinking of that really fits what you describe. And there's a, several of these. Um, is the one between Las Cruces and if you're if you know the Interstate 10. And you go through Las Cruces, New Mexico, coming from El Paso. You're going on an east-west highway, right? The mm-hmm. I-10. And then you go through a you go through a border patrol checkpoint. And there it is, you know, on this east-west route. Um wow. and uh it yeah, all of them so what the deal is you 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 pull up. If you're a US citizen, technically you don't have to show identification. That's one of the technicalities. So the, they're only they're supposed to ask you your citizenship. But while they're asking your citizenship, they'll do a quick visual inspection. And if they and then we go back to that reasonable suspicion criteria. And within that reasonable uh, suspicion criteria is racial profiling. Of course. Now, and, and they even when it was I think it was in the 2015 or 2014 when the Obama administration was trying to um to get like racial profiling, you know, try to extricate it from all the different departments. Mm-hmm. And they went to the Department of Homeland Security and uh, an official from the Department of Homeland Security, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is quoted in a New, in a New York Times article. He said, we, we depend on what he said, ethnic profiling. Mm-hmm. So in other words, he, it's, it's, they admit it, right? They admit that they do racial profiling at these checkpoints, that it's part of their reasonable suspicion criteria. And, and if, so what happens, you go through, there's a visual, visual inspection. If they deem you, if they deem something about you suspicious, then you're put into secondary inspection. And I've talked to agents about this. They, they will look at, you know, do you only have one key on your key ring? Are your are both your hands on the steering wheel? Um, like, what do you, they look at everything? They try to like, it's almost you know, and then and then secondary inspection is is really where a lot can happen, including um, you know, you'll get interrogated, questioned. They'll take you out of your car. They'll search your entire car from head to toe. They'll tear apart your seats. They'll um, make you sit on the ground. They might even handcuff you. I've heard, I've heard horrific stories. I've heard of people being sat on the ground with children with their hands behind their back. And um, one, one person saying, I don't you know, this, we have children here. We're in the hot sun. It's a summer in Arizona. And that caused the agents to come like pull out a baton. Like they were going to hit, you know, there's stories. Jesus. Of these, of, uh, of of these sorts of things happening in these checkpoints, especially these are, when people get pulled over. And these are people, again, 
traveling on a public road in the United States. That's all they're doing. <laughs> they're traveling yeah. on a public road in the United States. Um, and does this happen to American citizens as well? I mean, it, yeah. it like it's, you know, it's bad enough for it to happen to non-American citizens. But I, I we have this classification in America where we say I'm an American citizen and this can't happen to me. And, you know, I think that's a little honestly restrictive. I think we should extend empathy and rights to non-American citizens as well when they're in America. There's many non-American citizens who uh, are, you know, important to this country. Even I don't know. It's a basic, basic you know, you have human rights, whether or not you're an American citizen. But it's it, I think we have an understanding of the egregiousness even more when it's happening to to American citizens. Yeah, I would even say in the checkpoints, like non-citizens or people that don't have papers at all avoid the checkpoints. They don't go through the checkpoints. It's mm. part of it's part of the scheme that makes people walk around them and go through the desert and that sort mm. of thing. And so when like the the example I just gave was an Amer- was an American citizen. He's a, he's also a citizen of the Tonawatam Nation. So in the Tana, that again, that's the Native American reservation right mm-hmm. on the border. Every paved road out of the nation um, has a border patrol checkpoint. So it's almost mm-hmm. like a second layer of border. But you know, the people that live on the on the reservation are U.S. citizens, and they come. So they're on a paved road, going driving. They have to stop at a checkpoint. And the the incident I just I just mentioned was was you know one of many that this person I interviewed him the person that told me this um, and he and he like gave testimony to a number of different incidents that he's had but it's really typical for people on the Tonawatam Nation to to um, have some sort of what they call tra- many people call traumatic episodes at the checkpoint and in, in, wow. in fact one person even has coined a term called checkpoint trauma. So even approaching the checkpoint because something's happened in the past or because you've heard of so many people with so many incidents that you start, you start to like get nervous. And of course, well, if you're uh, sitting on the ground with your hands cuffed behind your back, you know, in the hot sun with your kids, it happens once on you and you're just trying to leave your fucking house <laughs> to like yeah. get to work or go to the next, go to the city to see a movie or whatever. Yeah. And that happens to you. Yeah. You're going to, your heart's going to pound the next time you pull through there. It, it, absolutely. That would happen. And, and this, I, I don't know. I mean, I did a whole episode of TV about this and just talking to you about it. I'm still flabbergasted that this happens in America. I mean, like our, cultural understanding of what you know a fascist country looks like of nazi germany what's one of the main images we have it's you know the uh the the jackbooted like government agent bending down to your window and saying eat a papier bit and like your papers please and uh-huh. then you're terrified you pull out your papers and i oh i hope yeah. they accept them you know and all that and that's like that is what we picture as being un-American, as being the thing that we defeated in World War II. That's in America, we're all about freedom. That's one. Of, that's one of the basic things of freedom is the free ability to move about your own fucking country. And we're doing it here in the U.S. Am I not right about that? What the fuck? I'm sorry. I'm getting mad. No, <laughs> I don't normally okay. get mad on this show, but I am getting mad. <laughs> yeah, it's that's ex- exactly what happened. And. There, when you're talking, it reminded me of this um, episode that happened with Senator, Senior Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. Wow. And he was driving. And so this is, goes to show you it's not just the southern border. He's driving in the state of New York. 
He says he was 125 miles, and he gave testimony to Congress about this. He was 125 miles away from the border. So he's not even, he's outside of the 100-mile zone. So that goes to show you that maybe the 100-mile zone is, he's kind of near Syracuse, I believe, or Syracuse, New York, or somewhere around there. And he's driving, and there's a Border Patrol checkpoint. And he's surprised. And he even has a license plate to say he's a senator. And um, they pull him over. And according to Leahy's testimony, um, the agent asked him to get out of his car. And then I have to paraphrase. I'm sorry. I wish I used to have this totally memorized. But he said, <laughs> uh, he said, um, under whose orders? And then the agent pointed to the gun on his hip. And this, and he said, that's, this is, under, no, under whose authority? And the agent pointed to the gun on his, on his hip and he said, this is the only authority I need. And that, and that was to Patrick Leahy, right? Wow, a, senator, a fucking senator. Right. A white senator, right? Uh, so, so, yeah, that, it, it fits your description. I mean, my God, at the very least, that's not. That also shows a problem of the culture of the Border Patrol, that an officer would even say that. I mean, civilian control of law enforcement in the military is like supposed to be a pretty high value in American society. And for a law enforcement official to say or think that, that should be anathema. It's like, under whose authority? Well, I should, you know, I was given an order by a lawful authority. That's how authority is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be, I have a gun so I can do whatever the hell I want. I I think that's also un-American. Yeah, and it seems like that's our, I mean, with a border patrol, I would say there's there's both, elements of both, right? It is, at the end of the day, it's a command top-down command structure. Mm-hmm. They get their, their orders from Department of Homeland Security. Like even if you look at how checkpoints are put up or taken down in the state of New York, um, that they the fact that it's even there in the first place comes from a top-down order. Mm-hmm. But then you have these incidents, and, there, and this isn't the only one. There's like so many of them where there's an abuse of authority or, or you know, like pointing to my gun or worse, right? Like, like, the the whole incident with the but like pulling out the baton or macing somebody or or pulling them out of their car or um you know tailgating them and spotlighting cars or you know pulling over people and you you know there's so many stories of which many people would be would consider abuse yeah. right human rights violations. I want to find out how they ended up. I want to ask you in a second about how they ended up in Portland pulling people into vans. But before that, I just want to talk about one more border issue. Another one that a lot of people have encountered is when you're crossing the border, how you apparently have no rights over your personal privacy. There's stories of, you know, people's phones getting taken. Uh, I've seen and this is like you know, to show you how big this problem is in like the tech press for like white collar tech workers. There's all these guides about how to protect your phone from the border patrol to use a password instead of your fingerprint because they can force you to use your finger, but they can't force you to divulge a password. And the problem is, you know, people have corporate secrets, personal information, you know, NDA stuff on their phones that they literally can't have other people going, going through. And so it's become a problem for like Google employees. <laughs> like, right. How do I get across the border without having my shit taken? Right. Um, I can only imagine how bad of a problem it is for people who are at the other end of the privilege spectrum. Uh, I mean, tell me about, tell me about that piece of it. Yeah. That piece of it's uh, becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger deal. When you look at the stats of electronic devices, phones, computers um, that have been confiscated by the border patrol, 
um, or a CBP, I should say, usually, because you're usually coming through a port of entry of some sort. Mm-hmm. The, the numbers have just been growing and growing and growing and growing and growing over the years. Uh, and, and there was a case, uh, the ACLU brought this to, um, I think, I can't remember what court, but there was a case on it. And uh, the court ruled against the ACLU. They, they ruled in favor of wow. CBP and saying that they could confiscate um, devices. I mean, I did a profile on uh, a, a student at McGill University in um, Mont- Montreal who came across, uh, he, he would cross back and forth to go visit his parents in New York City. And, um, and one time he was, he was a Middle East studies major i believe so he had pictures and he had some pictures of from travels he got he'd taken to the middle east and i think he had a picture of i can't remember of what stored on his computer like something hezbollah or something like that um but just like a picture of somebody like a do you know i can't remember it was like an innocuous picture of some sort but that Mm -hmm. very picture caused the agent to then Take him. He was on an Amtrak train. They took him off the train. They put him in. They put. They um, detained him for hours. Then they confiscated his computer. And then when they let him go, they they um they didn't give him back his computer. His then his computer was sent to him 15 days later, and it was obviously they'd obviously busted into it, mm-hmm. and um and 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 uh he then talked about like there was a trauma after that, right? And the trauma. Never really went away, or it didn't go away for years because every time he crossed the border after that, he went into secondary questioning and they had to search through his stuff and they would look through his electronic devices. So once it happens one time, then you're, de- then it's like you're set, you're, you're, it's going to happen to you a zillion times until the algorithm stops. Until- and this is an, this is an American citizen, I assume. You said parents in New York. I th- yeah, I think he's, it was dual French, but US, US French, dual. Uh- Student of Middle Eastern studies yeah. was flagged for secondary screening because he had a picture of Middle East, even if it's a picture of a Hezbollah bombing taking place. If you're a student of right. Middle Eastern <laughs> studies, it's OK for you to have a picture of that. What the hell? I mean, I, I'm sorry. Like, I should know by now better than to say, you know, it's un-American because the truth is stories like this are, uh, our history is full of them, but it's it, contrary to our professed values and to our image of ourselves as a country. Um, and the, the, again, this is something that you, you know, your, your laptop is confiscated because of photos on it. That sounds like something from uh, an authoritarian country on the other side of the world. It certainly does. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Yeah. And then there's the stories of um, and on the, on the, on the border between Michigan and Ontario, Detroit, mm-hmm. particularly Port Huron, um, they were, uh, all, all of a sudden there was a number of cases of people, Muslims that were crossing from one side to the other, U S citizens, they go to Canada and come back who are then being systemically harassed by customs and border protection, uh, being that I, I did interview somebody in this sort of situation. They're brought in. In this case, um, he had a grueling story. I haven't, this was from years ago, so I have to remember, but, but he, uh, they went, they went to a conference, I think, in Toronto from Port Huron. It was a conference during like the, I think it was right at Christmas, like December 25th, but it was a conference 
you know, that they went to and then they came back and, um, and there was all, all of a sudden he looked out his window, the car window, and there was all these CBP agents with like, uh, machine guns, like wow. surrounding their car and they were all brought in and they were interrogated and they were asked all kinds of questions or asked questions about where they went to, what they were doing there, um, what plans did they have, all these, all these things. And at one point, I can't remember exactly, but they put him in a, a position that was akin to torture. Um, like they made him stand and uh, he they in made a stress him like, position in a stress position as part of the interrogation. And this is Customs and Border Protection. This is going across the border. Um, yeah. and, that, and that was just one case of, I think, dozens and dozens of cases of U.S. citizens who are Muslim that were going across the Canadian border there, but coming back and, and facing this sort of discrimination. Well, and so how does, so that's all bad enough. <laughs> how does this, how does the Border Patrol, how does the agency end up pulling people into vans in Portland? That doesn't seem to have anything to do with the border. That doesn't seem to, that that's, uh, if, if you want to take the most unfavorable view towards those protests, you'd say that's civil unrest, which to me sounds like, I don't know, the National Guard or something. How does, uh, that's what is normally called out for those things. How does the Border Patrol end up doing that. Right. So one, again, let's the hundred mile zone. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they can, they have jurisdiction. They can be there. Um, it's part of the border, you know, Portland, what is it? 60 miles, 70 miles from the coast or something like that. So it's technically in the hundred mile zone. I think the actual international border is 12 miles out to sea. So mm-hmm. it's, it's barely in it, but it's there. Um, so there's that. And then, but border patrol and, and in particular, Bortac. So Bortac is the name of the unit that was important. Why did why do tactical things have the stupidest names? <laughs> Bortac, because tactical's in it. We got to make it this dumbass like acronym thing. Sorry, go on. Yes, <laughs> I would. I would. I would agree with your assessment. But yes, um, so Bortac is there. Uh, they and they're usually. Um, you know, Bortac, I don't know if you've been fo- following the No More Deaths no is a humanitarian organization that, you know, provides clinics for people crossing the border, puts out water, provides humanitarian aid because people are crossing through the desert. Mm-hmm. Well, they've been raided by Border Patrol, like their, their camps have been raided wow. by Border Patrol now, like at least five, four or five times in the last three or four years. And, um, that's usually Bortac, right? They're the, they're the, you know, they're the, they're kind of like the, what is the word? Like they're special SWAT forces, team. Of the, the SWAT team. They come in and do these sort of operations. They also do uh-huh. international trainings, but we can talk about that later if you want. But, um, so they, 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 they're the ones that deployed. They're part, it's not just border patrol. They're part of a joint task force. So the federal government sent in a joint task force. So there's other like armed agencies, other forces from DHS. But Bortac, you know, what, what are they doing? They're applying what they've learned about the border. They're border patrol agents. They're, they So they're applying all the, you know, they're training from the border. They're bringing the border apparatus, right? Who belongs, who doesn't belong, who's who can do things, who cannot do things, who's criminal, who's innocent, all those sorts of mentalities of the training of the Border Patrol to Portland to to uh, a protest, right? And, yeah. and, and so 
basically they're allowed to do that. And plus, uh, I, I think they would even argue if it wasn't in a hundred mile zone, they would still deploy Bortac and say that I bet I would, I put money on it that they'd, you know, the hundred mile zone might, might not even be confining for an operation like that, where they were a part of a joint task force, but it wasn't only Portland. They were border patrols deployed in Washington, DC during the black lives matter protests there. So there's pictures of that. You can see in this case, it was I. It, it was more just the green uniformed agents. They were on the streets of Washington, D.C. It's amazing because I, I laugh because I see them all the time in Arizona. They're in four screen uniforms. You know, you if you see them in Washington, D.C. walking the streets, it's just out of place. Right. And it, yeah. It'll, so but there they are. And then after, you know, right after the four, George Floyd killing. And in Minneapolis, um, this isn't Bortec, but CBP sent their drones over Minneapolis directly after the George Floyd, Floyd killing in like early June. And they were doing surveillance operations as part wow. of. So those are just three exam- recent examples of how, you know, this expand. It's like there's a border and all this this kind of suspended constitution and, you know, these violations. And then it just expands. Right. It goes everywhere. It's almost like and, the border becomes a proving ground. And, and and what causes this expansion? And we got to take a break in a second, but I just want to understand this piece of it. Uh, what causes this expansion? And also what to me seems like lawlessness, like, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an agent saying this is all the authority I need or, you know, ununiformed agents in unmarked ba- vans just picking people up. I'm like, well, hold on a second. Like, I don't think that other agencies do. I don't think the secret service is going around hustling people to unmarked vans. They all wear suits and they take their orders from the president. You know what I mean? And they, right. and they do with counterfeiting or whatever. It's like pretty strict about like what it is that they do. But the border patrol, you're just constantly hearing stories where you're like, I don't think that's what the border patrol is for. And I don't think it's legal for the What's going on? You know, like what is causing this sort of explosion in mandate and jurisdiction and dodgy behavior? Yeah, I mean, in a way, that that sort of behavior is what they do. I mean, in the board on the borderlands, when mm. they come across a group of unauthorized people crossing the border, there they snatch them up and put them up in, into vans and detain them and d- pretty much disappear them at times. Right? That's what they do. They they wow. so they just bring that what they're already doing into other places and then. And then this sort of extra constitutional powers they have. There's, they're not like, again, they're right. They're, they're not confined to the constitution. I remember I talked to, um, I interviewed somebody in, in that CBP headquarters in Washington, DC. And, and we got onto this topic and he said, and he started talking about the fourth amendment and he told me precisely, exactly, we are exempt from the fourth amendment. Exempt from, I mean, it's not even the Fourth Amendment, even there's mangled or they, it's kind of works sometimes. He said, we're exempt from it. It's already been shown that. And so there's this idea that you, they can do things that other agencies cannot do. Todd, this is very bad for the largest law enforcement agency in the country to say, we as an entire agency are exempt from the Fourth Amendment, which is the amendment against unlawful search and seizure, correct? Yes, 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 yes. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. for the largest <laughs> law enforcement agency in the country 
to believe that about that about itself and for it to be true to an extent. Yeah, it's both, right? It's I, you know, until that, and it, and in this case, I was talking to, uh, you know, I was I was interviewing an official from CBP in their Washington D.C. headquarters who was not that. an agent. He was he was dressed in a suit and tie, and talking to me, and he told me that, right? So it's definitely a part of their just fundamental belief of the core of of the system, and then it's it is it, pers- it is played out. Every day, right? You could say, "Oh, it's 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 rogue," but is it right? It's or is it just following how the, it's been established? And you go back to the racial profiling; like we're exempt from that too. We're exempt from the Fourth Amendment. We're exempt from any racial profiling regulations. We're exempt exempt from everything until you're yeah. pulling people off the streets everywhere. You're right. I guess my idea of like, oh, this must be them going rogue. How is this possible? If that's the way it's set up, that's what it's for. Um, My God. Okay, we have to take a break. When we get back, I want to ask you about why we have a border in the first place and your other uh, work reporting on the border. We'll be right back with more Todd Miller. Okay, we're back with Todd Miller. Uh, that was just an epic first half we had about the Border Patrol. But you've been reporting about the border for 20 years. Uh, you have a new book, Out or Coming Out. Coming uh, out yeah. and, and you're starting to ask yourself the question, my understanding is, of why we even have a border when the effects of it are so dire. Can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it really the the book the new book starts out when I was driving in the borderlands, actually in the Tonawatam Nation, about twenty miles, ten, fifteen, twenty miles north of the border, and I was driving down this dirt road, um, and I just came from a mountaintop, and it, and this mountaintop was it was one of those like beautiful views, and you're so close to the border, but all, all of a sudden you just couldn't see the border. The border was just non-existent from the from this vantage point. So I'm coming down this mountain having this like, wow, um, feeling. And then I'm driving down this dirt road and all of a sudden a person came, came out of the desert. So I'm driving through the Sonoran desert. People who are familiar with the Sonoran Sonoran desert and others, it's like very hot. It's in the, it's in the summertime, September. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there's saguaro cactus, barrel cactus, um, mesquite all around. And a person comes, comes onto the road and he, um, and I immediately stop and I give him a glass of water. So I start talking to him and he turns out he's from, he's from Guatemala. Um, he had crossed the border. Um, well, he didn't tell me that, but he, he, I surmised that. And, um, I asked him if he wanted anything else, if he needed anything else. And he was, he was clearly, you know, in a state of, he looked, he was, he, he looked like he'd been walking through the desert for a while and he was definitely thirsty because he chugged down the water r- really quickly. And he said, I want to, can you give me a ride? Right. And I, and I had to hesitate. I had to sit there. I had to hesitate. And in this hesitation came this, this book, like here, here comes a person who's asking for a ride. In any case, you know, of course you're going to give somebody who's, who looks like they're about to die of thirst a ride. Yeah. And, um, and I knew at the same time I was in this border zone, the one that we just described, the one that's just filled with 
border patrol agents. Those 21,000 agents are all, yeah. you know, they're all around. They have drones, you know, it's, they could be watching from the sky. They have surveillance towers that, that um, can have cameras that can see seven miles away. They have motion sensors. They have the helicopters. They, and the motion sensors, if you step on one of them, it'll go in a command center. The command center will, will you know, get their angle, their cameras to where you are. So I knew I was in this like huge surveillance apparatus right in the middle of it, even though it was at the same time, it just, I was out in the middle of the desert. Um, and I had to think that I had to think all these things because, because if I were to give him a ride, then from this place to another place, it would be a felony. Mm. If they caught me, it would be a felony. So, yeah. And that, so you, though, one of the, the rule, like I can give him a glass, I, you know, according to the humanitarian aid kind of setup, you can give, you can give a person food, you can give them water. But if you're further their presence in the United States, mm. you're, you're creating, you're doing an act of smuggling. Thus you are, you know, it's a felony. And so I had, so I had to, you know, I had to think that. And so this new book is almost like, wow. Like the act of just a, an act of what you would do for anyone at any time, like give them a ride, um, to simply give them a ride is criminalized, right? And how on earth can that be so? Yeah. And so this this book is really a meditation beginning at this place, like, you know, starting with a sort of questioning and then really just looking at borders. And I, in the, in, in the sense, in this book, I, I, I have several other books that are really, you know, straight, more straightforward journalism, looking at border issues from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one is more like looking over 20 years of reporting, 20 years of talking to people, 20 years of looking at borders, 20 years of studying them, reading books about them, talking to experts about them and all this stuff. And just really coming to a realization that these, this is at, at best an absurdity, right? Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, why do we even have, you know, the, the, the serious question of why, why they even exist and to begin with, I mean, I go into that. I don't know if I want to go into that quite yet, but, but the whole <laughs> idea of why they exist, um, um, you know, really is became a fundamental question of this reporting uh, of this in this new book. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult question to answer. Why do borders exist? It, I mean, they're a fiction, right? I mean, our our uh, nations that we that we have are are structures of the human mind. You know, they're not based on geographical features for the most part. Um, they're completely impermanent. The uh, many borders around the world, you can't even tell where they are. Uh, it's it's not uh, agreed upon where the border is. You know, if you look at the average map. A good number of those lines that have been drawn were made up by cartographers and, you know, it, it doesn't actually exist. If you look at, for instance, the recent, uh, you know, uh, conflict uh, in near Armenia uh, is a very good example of that, where these two countries are like, you know, fighting over uh, who controls this piece of land. Um, and. Yeah, what is the. What purpose do they do they serve is, is is a difficult, more difficult question to answer than you might think at first. Yeah, it certainly it certainly is. And you think about um, this, like the U.S.-Mexico border, for example. I mean, it's 
it's really the result of a bloody war. Um, the U.S., the, the Mexican-American War in the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you, when you look at Mexican history books, it's called the Yankee Invasion, right? It's like they invade, like Mexican territory was invaded by the United States and taken over. Um, but then when you look at indigenous peoples that live here, it's like all of it was just like the new Spain it was imposed upon it and then the United mm-hmm. States. And it's interesting when you go back to the, the border in Arizona, like the surveyors, the cartographers, the soldiers just showed up and started drawing it without consulting like the Tonawatan people, for example. They weren't mm-hmm. consulted at all. They just show they just showed up and started drawing the border. Or like Af- the continent of Africa, the eighteen 18- 83 Berlin conference, European powers basically sliced up Africa um, into the the shapes of the countries that they are right now. And they cut through just like the U.S.-Mexico border, because if you look at the Tonatam, there's Tonatam on the U.S. side, Tonatam on the Mexican side. There's no consideration. There's a common language, common traditions, you know, common people. And the same, like, I went been recently to Southern Kenya or not recently before the pandemic, of course, but, uh, the, the Maasai people in Southern Kenya, the, the line drawn by Europeans in Berlin cut right through, you know, cut through their territory. One part's Kenya and one part of the Maasai live in, uh, live in Tanzania. And so they're not able to organize together in the country, right? It's like mm. a divide and conquer. And there's a, there's, mm. there's a lot of colonial roots. Like a colonialism is very much attached to this, to this, these, these formations of, of borders. And there's one academic that calls it the, the violent Wait, No, gosh, I can't remember. Sorry. I'm going to have to think of an academic term and I can't remember it, but it's something about the, the, the violence of origins, right? Most borders started with some sort of violence and then there's a politics of forgetting. And then you're supposed to forget that violence ever, ever happened. So you forget it and the border just becomes as natural as a river or a mountain range. It's just there, right? A map, like, uh, like uh, a map will be color coded. So you see the world in these color codes of these shapes and you forget where the, the great mountain ranges of the world are, or the, the, the rivers and the, the natural borders that you would have. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. You forget about the, yeah, th- those man-made lines become more important than the watersheds and the rivers and the the actual natural features that that were there originally and are still there and are still, you know, determining so much of where we, you know, what characterizes where we live. But I mean, by imposing those borders, we also reshape the the country and the air and our ideas about those borders reshape those areas. Um, I mean, the fact that our southern border is so militarized and the northern border is less militarized. I'm sure it's militarized to some extent, but not nearly to the same extent, means that it has dramatic effects on the lives of people living in those places. You know, someone living in... I I was struck by when I found out that... uh, Yeah, I was always aware that, for instance, people went, you know, go back and forth between Canada and the U.S., you know, for business. You know, if you're living up... In the you know Great Lakes region or Maine or somewhere like that, it's just part of life, you know. Like uh, Canada's right there, and you go there, you know, or you you have business interchange with stuff like that. Um, and I never thought of the southern border in the same way. And then I read some piece somewhere years ago about how there are people in the El Paso region who commute from 
uh, La Ciudad Juarez, right? Am I correct? That's the yeah. that's yeah. the uh, Mexican counterpart to El Paso. It's El Paso is a split city. It's like the twin cities, but half of it's in the U.S. and half of it's in Mexico. And there are people who commute every single day across the border, just like you might commute from the suburbs or you might commute from Minneapolis to St. Paul. There are people who do the same commute, except they're commuting across the most militarized border and it takes them hours. And uh, that's... Uh, I, I, that that starts to seem absurd when you look at when you look at it that way. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, in fact, I uh, a job I had um, a decade ago. I was as a, I worked with a binational organization, and I would commute to Nogales, Mexico, every day. Uh, not every day, but several times a week. Um, and then, same exact thing. You'd have to wait in these long lines and. Uh, hours at times uh, to, you know, to get back. Um, you'd have to plan, you start to have to plan for it. You're like, oh, what should be, um, you know, 30 minutes now is uh, three hours, right? And you just have, it just becomes part of how you plan your day. Oh, if you mm-hmm. cross the border, then you're going to have to allow, oh, I can't, I can't cross the border today because I have to get back for this at this time. Right. And, and you have all, you just have to put that as part of your psychological psychology and the planning. Um, and at some point you have to ask what purpose is this serving? You know, I, I mean, uh, all of this, you know, militarization and prevention of people crossing the border. I mean, people do cross the border. Still, despite all this, in in large numbers, they come across on planes, on boats, they come across through the desert, uh, despite the largest law enforcement apparatus in the country. And, you know, now we've got, you know, half completed walls all over the place. We've got drones. Like you said, you were driving through and it felt like there were Border Patrol agents all around you. And still people are crossing. But just now at great Misery at great humanitarian cost, at a great cost of loss of life, of huge expenditure, of of resources. Um, it does make you ask, what is the point of militarizing the border in this way? I mean, sure, draw a line on the ground, but why make it impermeable? Yeah one one thing I always I always th- or I thought about I kind of thought about it in this in this new book is the border is always drawn for. You know the people, the poorest people, the the people who are dispossessed. The people not it's not drawn for the border patrol doesn't exist. For example, for the mining company, like the mining company from the United States that goes to Zacatecas in Mexico and and takes over a whole community and uses their water supply and drops cyanide in it. And all this, there's no there's no checkpoint for them. There's no agent stopping that company's executives saying, "Hold on a second. Yeah, nothing, nothing like that. No, they're flying over thirty-five thousand feet over over the border um, and arriving with no problems. There's no ICE agents rounding them up and detaining them in detention centers. There's no deportation apparatus for mm-hmm. for them. There's and also like for U.S. military that crosses that's going crossing borders all over the world, and there's no you know the countries don't have any say about that or greenhouse gas emissions. Like when you compare um, the United States to like Central American countries of, if you take the United States is um, emitted like 700 times more emissions than greenhouse gas emissions than El Salvador, Guatemala, 
and um, Honduras combined. And right now, when you're when you're looking at Honduras, you have if people have been following the caravans that have been coming from Central America, like there's an eight thousand person caravan coming from Honduras, and it turns out that many people in that caravan have been displaced by the hurricanes. There was back-to-back hurricanes that hit Category Mm. 4 hurricanes that intensified over warm, uh, absurdly warm Caribbean waters. They went from a Category... One went from a tropical depression to a Category 4 really quickly, and they pounded Nicaragua and Honduras. And, of course, that's... You know, climate scientists say that's a part of the climate crisis, right? The intensifying storms. And now people's houses are flooded in all these communities and they're in this, and then they're in this caravan and they're heading north. And so you, but like you look at the greenhouse gas emissions from the United States across borders and affect people in other places all the time. Right. Uh, compare compared to like those in Honduras, which is just like a fraction. It's it's, yeah, it's our it, greenhouse gas emissions that are causing hurricanes to become more extreme and more frequent. Right, exactly. And then you start thinking, whoa, if if what is this border like? What questions are we at? What questions are officials asking to put this border or to militarize this border? Right? What are like? Are they? You're trying to stop displaced people. I mean, are you? So you put up a border. Like if you look, like some of the re- research I did for one of my books was looking into climate change and finding out there's all kinds of documents, of course, in the Pentagon, but also in DHS, which is following the Pentagon's lead about the future, about people being displaced due to climate, um, about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what are what is the answer to that? And then when you look at the DHS documents, it's building more walls. That's what they say. They preparing for mass migrations. So, um, so you have the the question, the problems, right? People being displaced, people being on the move, um, and the, and and you'd think, well, the solution to this would be to mitigate, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, maybe, or maybe it would be not having the mining company going and poisoning people's waters. Or not sending toxic waste to the community in San Luis Potosí, or not having the other mining company want to dig under a, a community's cemetery for for silver, like they were trying to do in this community in Honduras, and people actually sat in their cemeteries in the cemetery where their ancestors, where their grandparents are buried, saying, "You're not going to let you come in here and dig underneath us." Like maybe the questions that we need to ask, you know are other, you know, that, that if we're going to like have a solution for a, a world where less people have to be displaced and be on the move. But, but it seems like the, there's only one question being asked and that's, oh, how do we stop people from crossing our border? And then the only answer becomes building walls, building yeah. surveillance, putting more agents. And I mean, the, mil- the militarization of the border has even been, even if you want to adopt the point of view that, hey, we can't let people willy nilly into the country and we need to have control over it and, and da da da. You know, we, we can talk about how impossible it is to immigrate into the country legally and, and all those sorts of things. And I could make the argument that, Oh, you know, people who cross the border are an asset to America. Rather we can have that whole argument that we've, that we've had before uh, that's being had. Someone's having that argument on CNBC right now, you know? Um, But even if I were to adopt the point of view that said, 
uh, okay, we we want to control who comes through the border. The fact is that the militarization of the border has been counterproductive to that goal. Uh, we had Douglas Massey on our show uh, a number of years ago, um, who does you know field research on who crosses the border and who has crossed the border since I think the seventies. He's been going down and doing field research, just counting people, interviewing them, doing basic field research. And um, he found that as the border got more militarized, basic. And I'm sorry, you know all this stuff, and you tell me if I'm wrong. No, you're <laughs> right. Again, it's wrong. <laughs> but that you know the in the Southwest, um, agriculture for you know the entire history of the country had been migrant labor, had been people coming across from Mexico. They worked the fields from growing season, then they go back home. That was like the fucking system, you know. And that's how we built the country. We built it that way. Then. In the sort of Reagan years, we started militarizing that border, saying you can't come across the border anymore. Um, And so instead, those people started coming across. And since they could no longer move freely back and forth, they came across and they put down roots. They said, well, now that I can't go across back and forth and I got to scramble over a fence or like through the desert or whatever. Well, now when I get to Phoenix or wherever it is I am, I'm going to I'm going to hang out and like, you know, raise my kids here because I can't go back and visit my kids back over in Mexico And that if you are someone who hates people from Mexico being in America, well, you just made your problem worse. (laughs) You didn't you didn't solve anything by by increasing uh, by increasing that border presence. I'm sorry, but your racism actually made more people who you're racist against live in America. So you (laughs) fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Am I right about this? Or I mean, this is a story that that we heard from Douglas Massey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's totally true. Like people. Yeah, it's so hard and so dangerous to cross the border. Um, and, you know, you end up going through the desert. You go end up maybe so many people have died crossing the border. Um, there's been more than 8,000 uh, bodies that have been recovered since the 1990s. Um, that, yeah, I mean, who wants to do that again? Who wants, you know, and... And, and so it, I've, you know, I've, it, unfortunately you end up talking to people who just don't feel like they can go visit family. And, and sometimes yeah. people will do that. You know, if, if a loved one, like a parent dies, they'll go, Oh, then they'll go back for a funeral. And then they have, have to, I've met people crossing the border who've done that, but then they have to, they have to come all the way back through the desert, risk their lives, um, to get back. Um, and and so yeah, that's that's the effect. The mili- that's one of the effects the militarized border has. That's for sure. What if if you had the power? If Todd Miller could uh, completely, you could do whatever you wanted with the border. You know what I mean? Like what what what's a better what's a better world for us to live in uh, when it comes to the border? Like how how if we were able to think about it differently and and have it mean something else. What could it mean instead and, and what benefits would we see as a result? I mean, I think we have, I mean, when you think of the 21st century and the problems and, and what's coming down the pipe, um, and you can even put it in the context of the pandemic that's happening right now, uh, or climate change, climate, climate, like people are saying, you think this pandemic is bad? Well, that's just mm-hmm. like the appetizer for what's what's being predicted as far as the climate crisis that's going to hit this planet more. It's already hitting this planet, right? We can talk about yeah. what's going on in Texas right now, or yeah. you know, any number of things any at any time, right? Um, but uh, but um, like when you think about the the threat, like when you have the borders the way they are, 
what is being told to us as the threat is somebody coming across from another place across that wall. Oh, on the other side of those train tracks, that person's going to come and get you, right? That's what you're told. You're constantly told. It's, it's not, it's definitely not creating a solidarious world, right? It's not, it's creating a world of divisions, us versus them. Um, it's creating a world where people are not cooperating. They're not able, they're not able to, to, um, organize together in ways. Yeah that we need to, we need, like, when you think of just displacement alone, displacement is predicted to be, there's places that are predicting a billion people to be displaced by 2100. Like this idea that a world on the move, you know, with sea level rise alone, I think, you know, whole coastal cities are supposed, are going to become uninhabitable Mm -hmm. and people are going to have to move from one place to another and livelihoods are going to be lost. It's kind of like what you're seeing in Honduras right now with people coming north. And um, the number of, the number of unlivably hot days where you live is going to rise. Like the number of, the number of days where being outside could kill you in Tucson is going to go up, 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 up. And there people are going to have to leave. Yeah, this last summer was the worst ever in Tucson. It was 106, 100, day, 100 degree days. And the, the average in Tucson is wow. 62. So it's almost double the, what, what, is, what I would say was the average. I'm sure the average is going to grow now. But yeah, I mean, we're looking at a, 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 a crisis that really knows no borders. And it's really going to take a global effort you know, to figure out what to do. And there's some things that are already in place. There's going to be pretty massive displacement. And this idea of dividing into sections where some people are allowed and some people are not, some people are included and some people are not, along racial divisions, right? Because you look at those borders and they're often these racial yeah. divisions. Um, some people even use the term global apartheid to, ref- to refer to this world of of a globalized militarized borders that that you see between the global north and the global south where yeah. people are being displaced and um you can see it in the european union and middle east and africa right people coming 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 into the european union they're doing the same thing fortress europe yeah. is called right mediterranean boats capsizing in the mediterranean like people dying in our our deserts and um this is like wrong right this is what we have to there ha, like the the world that is forcing us to think of of contemplating doing things differently and and um and that i think might mean organizing ourselves differently it's like there's so many things like the pandemic right now needs a global response like all the talk about the strains now you know, oh it doesn't even matter like you could they could go completely away in the United States, but if there's a strain coming from wherever, right? Yeah. Then it's a global problem, right? It's just the borders don't stop it. It's a global problem. So, so it, yeah. it, it takes like, it takes thinking about things differently, thinking about things not confined to these places. And then on top of that, the complacent, the pl- like the United, you know, United States, European Union, Australia, you know, the kind of power centers and how, you know, how did they become such wealthy places? And why is the world, why is there endemic inequality in the world? Why, why, you know, why, are, why is, why in some places you can, like, why in here, I, in Tucson, in the minimum wage here sucks, right? Mm-hmm. But I can earn $7.25 an hour, which, see, which would seem like a lot in Nogales, which, which is an average line worker in a maquila for a U.S. corporation would make, like 30 minutes from my house. 
just because mm-hmm. of a line. Yeah. You know, and it seems like those that's what the border the borders are organizing ourselves into a stratification of inequality of who's accepted and who's not. And it's it's inadequate to answer our the problems at hand in the globe to to yeah. answer like what what's coming, the real threats. And it seems like it's about time or it's either going we it's either if we don't do it, it's going to be forced to really think about organizing things and doing things differently. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of what that organization would be, you know, and the, the, the nationalists, the fascist nationalists, you know, what do they hate? They hate the globalists, right? That's the big, that's their big curse word. That's their big slur. These people are globalists. And, uh, you know, I have to say, I don't love the globalists either, but who are we talking about? You know, when, who, who, what is our previous vision that we've had of open borders, right? It's the corporate vision. It's the Thomas Friedman vision. It's the, it's the IMF and the World Bank. It's the moving capital freely from country to country. It's letting Facebook and Amazon and Exxon do whatever they want, right? In any country, that's been the vision of it. And there is a word that you said earlier you said solidarity between people of these countries. And I feel like that's a different version. Global solidarity is a much stronger vision because fuck what the corporations and the wealthy people at Davos and, you know, and in Dubai want to do. The people at the top of the Burj in Dubai, not the people working, cleaning the rooms. You know, we should have solidarity right. with those people. We should have solidarity with the people in the factories in Mexico that you're talking about. We should have like like what we need is the knowledge that like okay my my wealth as an american my uh, is is built on emissions that are causing hurricanes that are displacing people in honduras and i therefore have a responsibility to them they have a responsibility to me because we exist on the same fucking continent you know we're we're part <laughs> of the same we're part of the same system um and that we have that in common and we need to to have some some solidarity together with each other as people, as working people, as citizens of the continent, and then expanding that out to the world. Um, so I don't know. That's that's what's sort of coming coming to me is like because I I don't think that you know again when we say open borders we we think about you know the policies of the nineties that that sort of brought us to this to this place and the early 2000s and those don't seem appealing but i think there's an alternate vision that that you're helping bring into focus for me yeah i totally that's i think that's that's it like when you look at you know those policies of like north american free trade agreement nafta which is basically an open borders policy mhm it's it's it was written by 500 corporations mm-hmm. right there wasn't there wasn't like civil society organizations invited to be a part of this. There wasn't like people who are going to be most affected by NAFTA, small farmers organizations in Mexico, many, like there's like a million small farmers displaced within two, two years of NAFTA in Mexico because they couldn't compete with the U S companies. They weren't invited. They weren't invited to the table. So it's not a solidarious version of open borders. It's open borders for certain people, certain companies, um, you know, that, you know, Archer Daniel Midland can transport its corn across into Mexico without any, you know, red tape. Um, But the small farmer in Mexico can no longer compete. And so, and so like what the, that is not an answer to the problems we have at hand that's causing the problems, right? That's 
that I don't know if that's what's meant by globalists, right? But that's 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 what's you know that globalist is a slur. I mean, that's all that's all it is. <laughs> yeah. But there is that. What 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 is the connotation? It's the it, right. it's what you're talking about. It's the it's the wealthy, you know, uh, exporting jobs because they can, uh, you know, pay people less over there. Um, but that's not the kind of open border that we want. We want, uh, uh, you know, we want to uh, have a solidarity with the people, uh, with our neighbors, with the exactly. people who we share who we share this this planet with. Exactly. Like, why can't I mean, I do, <laughs> but but why why is it stop? Why is it why is it an impediment for me to go across Nogales and and meet with people and and organize with those people and understand we live in the same place, right? We're I'm in Tucson, they're in Nogales, we're in the same region, we're in the same place, you know? Why can't we? I mean, yeah. we're we're co-creating a place together in a lot of ways, but yet there's this big, huge border. Um, the border wall and now it's like wrapped with razor wire. It's even more visually appealing <laughs> uh, <laughs> and with cameras mounted and border patrol agents. And, and when you try to go to the border wall and talk to people across it, they'll, they'll go, what are you doing? What are you, are you trying to pass strings across the border? You know, so you're, uh, it's just, why is it so hard? You know, why is it so hard to do yeah. that solidarious come together? Um, and, and and on top of that, when it does happen, it's amazing, right? Like there's some there's some ecological projects, binational projects that are like conserving water in a drought prone Arizona, where water tables are rising in in a during a drought, which is a, totally impossible. But here they are, a cross border project. People working on Mexico, people working in the United States, because the drought is nailing them both, right? And yeah. here, and, and coming together, p- p- like building these gabions, which which conserve water, and they end up both water table rises. It doesn't. The water table doesn't doesn't look at the border. It just rises, right? It doesn't yeah. stop. It doesn't go. Hey, there's a border there. I shouldn't rise on that side of the border. It <laughs> rises, right? Yeah. And and it's just like. It, the border makes no sense, right? It just it in these it just makes no sense at all. It's it, it doesn't because, it doesn't work for the water table. The water table rises either side. Yeah, because ultimately we we live on the same scrap of land. I mean, we're yeah the 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 borders again are a fiction uh, that you know. I mean, occasionally we're able to build some structure there that create changes the physical landscape in our own puny way, but like. I mean, you know, the rain falls on it and the water flows, you know, to both sides alike. And when we, you know, our, uh, again, our emissions change weather patterns, you know, um, and then that causes uh, ripple effects that then affect us. Um, And this is all one system and we can't, you're, you're completely right. It's impossible to wall ourselves off and pretend like it isn't. Like what yeah. happens in what happens in Mexico, what happens in Brazil, what happens in China happens here. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's that's exactly the, the truth. So this is this is why the name of your book is Build Bridges, Not Walls. That is correct. Yes. Um, well, uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm really thrilled to have had you on the show to talk about it. And thanks so much for sharing these ideas and these experiences with us. Um and yeah, I mean, people can get, is the book out now? The book will be out the end of March. People can pre-order 
at, at, at City Lights. City Lights is the publisher, so you can pre-order at City Lights, but it will be out at the end of March. Wonderful. Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it. Really appreciate you. It was my pleasure, Adam. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you once again to Todd Miller for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. His book, once again, is called Build Bridges, Not Walls, and it will be out soon. And that is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producers, Kimmy Lucas and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Andrew Carson, the party god, Andrew WK, for our theme song. I got to thank the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode on. You can find me on social media at Adam Conover or at adamconover.net. If you have any comments or questions about the show, if you have any topics that you would like to see covered in future episodes, shoot me an email at factually at adamconover.net. I'd love to hear from you. And that is it for this week on Factually. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. And please remember to stay curious. Stay curious.